In this episode, I'm joined by Mark Dempster. Mark has a pretty interesting story to tell. Earlier in life, he was an international drug smuggler, an addict for 17 years, homeless, and has spent considerable amount of time locked up in a Spanish prison. Now, he is a leading addiction psychotherapist at Harley Street Clinic in London, a best-selling author of two books, a family man, and a sought-after speaker and teacher on working with addiction. His work has attracted praise from the likes of Russell Brand and Ross Kemp, and he's been featured on BBC, The Daily Record, and numerous other news outlets. In this interview, we explore Mark's background and his journey to recovery, common myths surrounding addiction, the root causes of addiction, and Mark's five-step framework for working with addiction in psychotherapy. Mark will be presenting on schema therapy and addiction at our forthcoming Day on Addiction online conference on September 25th, 2022. The other speakers will be Dr. Anna Lemke, who will give a talk on dopamine and addiction, and Professor Mark Lewis, who will present on internal family systems and addiction. If you're interested in attending, you can get a substantial discount on your ticket if you go to theweekenduniversity.com and enter the promotional code POD when registering. That's POD, all one word, when registering. You can learn more about Mark's work at www.markdempstercounseling.com. Okay, Mark, welcome to the show. To get started, could you maybe just give us a brief overview of your trajectory and how you ended up working uh, working in addiction? Oh, right, excellent. Yeah, it's basically I I got clean and sober from addictions myself. I um, in 1996, uh, I went to a rehab in Bournemouth in the south of England. And um, uh, basically, I, I met a therapist there who was also Scottish from Glasgow. He was from a similar, a similar type of background. His his family were actually involved in sort of bank more bank robbery type stuff. But they were, and he was a therapist. And um, and I I remember when I met him, and he was my therapist. I. I thought, right, God, this guy's really changed his life around from where he came from, a poor working class area in Glasgow uh, at the time, Easter House. And he's now a therapist, and he was quite a leading therapist at the time. So that that was definitely an influence. There's, there's different strands of it here. There's um, also one of the strands, I guess, is that when I was a child, my father was an alcoholic, I grew up in, and my grandfather was an alcoholic. So I grew up in a family where there was a lot of addiction. So from a young age, I, 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 there was two aspects to it. One, one, one was that I was, I often make a joke that there's more psychopaths per square foot in Glasgow than there is anywhere in the world. I, but I, 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 I grew up around quite a lot of sort of violent people really, could be violent people. And uh, and I had to navigate those relationships, as, even as a quite as a child, really. And, and and anyway, in Glasgow, you've got all the sectarian stuff, as you know, and it's it's just like a little Belfast, really, Glasgow. But so I grew up sort of helping, really, my father, 
basically like a wee counsellor really to my father when I was young. Um, I then I when I got clean as well in '96, I I was really fortunate because I met I met um, I was only like two weeks clean in this rehab and I met at the time Eric Clapton and he was I went to this twelve step this fun night in Brixton it was like a music night and uh, it was really bizarre it was bizarre because this friend took me there and from the rehab from the actual detox and he says oh we'll go to this music thing because this band are playing they used to support Jimi Hendrix they they were like uh they were sort of part of this uh that this band used to support Jimi Hendrix and the Isle of Wight Festival so I went there to see this band this, and this guy who's still a friend of mine who who knew Jimi Hendrix and was had a popular band at the time a hippie sort of 60s band and Eric came in and and my friend says that's Eric Clapton and I was like, what would, I mean, what would Eric Clapton be doing here? Like, it's like a, a basement of this church in Brixton. It's a winter's night. It's horrible. There's like 60 or 70 of recovering addicts all roaming around. And, and it's like, and he says, because he's in recovery and he, he's got a rehab in uh, Crossroads and in Antigua. And, you know, he does a lot of stuff. He does a lot. So anyway, long, long short of it, I, I had a poster of Eric on my wall when I was a kid, I had a poster of him and, Jim, and Jimmy Page for Zeppelin, and both of them I know quite well. <clears throat> and I, I then um, like, and it was such a, and then I wound up speaking to him, and so there's there's certain influences that were really strong in the beginning of my recovery, like really had a, they're really poignant, like meeting Eric. Uh, you know my early childhood stuff around my dad, uh, meeting in this therapist in this rehab who I, I knew sort of his of his family in Glasgow, and they all contributed to this thing of like oh I can turn this negative, this this darkness really it wasn't all negative look because addiction is not always negative but there's good look nobody would carry on if it wasn't fun at the beginning and it wasn't exciting and adrenalized and you wouldn't do it but so it's not all it, it starts off good and then it starts descending if you've got an addictive personality it starts descending into the darkness through time and you cross a line so so you know I, I thought how can I how can I use the experience my own personal experience too and my my personal experience was quite crazy. Was a lot of it was crazy, you know. It was really like more extreme sort of behaviours, really in addiction, as in the smuggling and you know going going across borders from you know where's death penalty and taking really crazy risks uh, physically and 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 to my mental health, I suppose as well as well as you know like. Um, in the pursuit really of money and the pursuit of status and kudos and so so that that that, that was some of the that was some of the yeah the the, the backdrops really of and and the, the sort of building blocks really are then becoming a therapist and you know and then along the way and then and then and then I was really keen to learn 
as well. I was really fascinated by Jung and Freud and, you know, these sort of early therapists. And, and, uh, and I was really keen to know about myself, to arm myself with some facts, really, to get to know myself so that that addictive part of me, I had, you know, I had a sort of mental defence against it. So the more knowledge that I had about, you know, uh, uh, the more knowledge I had about myself and more awareness of myself, the more I could see that sort of twin that resides inside me that wants to take me back that can take me back to the, the 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 craziness really and the pain that comes with it. Hundred percent. That's that's so interesting, Mark. Just to get a, a brief glimpse of your story. Um, just for anybody listening, this is really only scratching the surface. Like, if you want to like learn more, we don't have time to get, to get into it in this interview. But if you want to learn more about Mark's story, he's got a book. I think it's called Nothing to Declare, where you go through yeah. this and. There's some fascinating uh, stories in there, um, which we can't get into now, but, we, but maybe that's for another another time. Um, so next, Mark, I would li- like to sort of ask you about what your definition of addiction is and what do you perceive to be the root causes of addiction? Well, this is, this is interesting. So how I see addiction is, and we're in a modern day society now, addiction if we look at if we look at how people even use phones and social media, we can see how addicted people are to their phone. I mean, I mean this phone that we are talking through is now is like the modern day hypodermic needle, really, isn't it? I mean, I know Anna Lemke talks in, in, in Dopamine Nation about this, but it is really it's true. So dopamine is any behavior really that causes an impact, causes negative consequences, causes harm that a person keeps repeating and wants to change but can't stop it, really. And so it's any any sort of maladaptive behaviour that causes them and those around them pain and they, they are psychologically or physically dependent on that behaviour. And so, you know, and, and it's interesting because Anna talks in her books about, you know, about, we you know, as hunter-gatherers and, thousands and thousands of years, we would have came from a position of scarcity. And, you know, we are, we've got an abundance, isn't it? We've got an abundance around us of, of stimulus. You know, like as soon as I turn on the phone, I've got dope, I go on a date nap or I go on, you know, Uber Eats or I get something delivered or Amazon or I can shop or I can, you know, there's just a multitude of different things that I can fix on. Now, um, for me, then, uh, my addictions took the form of drugs and alcohol from a young age. Now, at a younger age, sort of, uh, not pre-puberty, but but certainly just after I hit puberty, I started to use cannabis. But, but, but before pre-puberty, I was also drinking from a young age. I got exposed to alcohol, alcoholic family. So, it, 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 you know, I... I know that there's twin study, obviously there's twin studies and they can see that, you know, 50% of those, you know, that, that, that go up in very different social environments still become, they, they still develop addictions. So you'd say, okay, well, is there a genetic factor? Is there a, you know, is there a predisposing gene? But then then I, I tend to think, and it's it's like the Gabor Mate and stuff, it, that there's actually, do you know what's interesting? I, I was at one of his events, I was at Gabor's event, I wound up talking to him for a while, but I was at one of his events recently and I said, you know, Gabor, you, you get I get the impression then 
that if you if you if you deal with the trauma, and I'm a, I'm trained as a traumatologist as well, but if you deal with the trauma, then it's almost happy days. Like you could just, you know, if you deal with the underlying issue, which is the trauma, the PTSD, and you 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 learn sort of coping strategies, how to deal with the, you know, the low self esteem and the hypersensitivity and, and such like, then almost you wouldn't have an addiction anymore. You, you know, you could drink social. And I said, asked him that, so do you think that? And he says, well, uh, you know, what part of you is asking? He, he turned it back on me really by saying, well, what part of you is asking that? Because he didn't want to, because I said, look, I've been, so, I've been clean and sober for 25 years. And I've seen a multitude of people who deal with trauma, who deal with the underlying issue, and then they start drinking again and they start using drugs again and they're dead. My, two of my best friends in Ireland who were Irish, from Dublin are both dead and they picked up they so they stayed sober for 10 years and another one 14 years and and the 14 the one of the guys the 14 years was had been abused sexually abused by the Christian brothers and uh I got a massive payout and you know and I mean this is a while ago now when they started paying out all the the, the victims but you know so uh, I, I tend to think there is neglect. I, 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 I think the root of it is that there's often, with loads of men that I work with and the women as well, there's often a, an absent, fa- an, an emotionally absent parent. And it's often a father as well that I see, especially with the men. So there, there seems to be this thing where in the developmental stages and they're, when they're uh, of the child, and, uh, where there's a where there's a level of criticism, or or a sort of abandonment or neglect from one or both the parents, there seems to be this thing where the child starts to internalise that message about themselves and say, "I'm not enough." And it's and what's interesting about this is you could have two children, you could have t- you could have twins, and a father could be telling each of them off in the same exactly the same way. He could be saying, "Look, you've done this wrong." Da, da, da. And one of the twins, what, the the child that's got the hypersensitivity, will go over it and over it and over it in their mind and internalize it and make it about them, you know. And whereas the other child can just brush it off and not be affected by it, doesn't give it a second thought. So then you think, okay, is it the combination then? Is addiction the combination of a sort of neglect and maybe a hypersensitivity that, or a temperament things that one child maybe is is much more sensitive? Now, and then you think, well, okay, so the, the sensitivity, where does that come from? Were they born very sensitive? Are they born really sensitive children right from the go-get? Or is there factors that's happened along the way that's made them much more sensitive around how do they process stuff or what, you know? But but certainly, if I just relate it to me and what I see with loads of my friends that are in recovery and loads of the women that I've, you know, that I've worked with in rehabs throughout the years and years is, uh, and private clients is, there's often this, they often have at the core some core messages about themselves, which create which creates low self esteem, and it's which relates to the schema stuff that we'll talk maybe talk about. It. Well, we are we'll do the training about, but is so they've got they've often got these core messages and projections, 
It's funny because Mark Twain says, I've gone through many terrible things in my life, most of which never happened. And what, what I can see is that with people with addictions, they can see these areas of the brain that, that you know, that they can see that there's a dopamine depleted, like Russell, uh, Russell Brand done and uh, Professor Knott and Chip Summers done a, uh, a little, yeah, it was just like a little podcast about it, actually, um, that they can see through fMRI scanning of the brain, they can see there's, with people with addictions, as opposed to those that don't have addictions, they can see dopamine production is depleted. They can see the part of the brain that deals with impulse control and, and also stress management. Those three areas of the brain, they can see are compromised as opposed to people who don't have addiction. So, and so you think, well, where did that begin then? The dopamine depletion, did that, did that? Because it's a really big factor, because if the dopamines, if there's a dopamine depletion, it, not just that as a neurotransmitter that it gives pleasure, but it also it lays down memory and provides meaning and purpose in life. So if I've got a dopamine depletion, and this goes back maybe to some of the stuff that Anna Lemkish, I don't know if she's mentioned this in the book, but if I was saying a, a trait like way back in a tribe, and if I was depre more depressed because I had a, a depletion of dopamine, the likelihood is I would get ostracized by the by the tribe members. So it would be a survival threat if I had a dopamine, because if I'm if I'm ostracized by the tribe members, right, and put out the tribe, I can't fend for myself, I can't survive. So so if I take it forward and I'm going into a pub and I pick up a pint of beer, and as soon as I drink it, I get I get a, a dopamine it's a dopamine reinforcer and an uplifter an uplifter. So as soon as I take that drink, that sends a message to the survival part of the brain too that this is that actually a depletion of dopamine. I know it's like reptilian brain stuff, but basically it sends a message saying that you've got the right amount of dopamine now. You've got homostasis really of you know, so as opposed to somebody who's already got dopamine, enough dopamine, when they take a pint or they take a drug or whatever it is, it could be, but it could be other things. It could be sex. It could be anything really gambling that they've already got enough dopamine. So their brain, their reward pathway works in a very different way. Whereas minds recognize it as a survival threat. So it says, keep taking this, take more you know, to get the right amount of dopamine. And so I, I think that's quite fascinating how the brain, I mean, I'm sure in, in the years to come through fMRI scanning, they'll be able to see, and they'll be able to see with young kids. I think they'll start to be able to see if they, I mean, it's resource intensive, isn't it? They'd need to spend a good bit of money on this if they, if they but I'm pretty sure if they, if they took groups of young people and put them in fMRI scanning and looked at the brain, you could then identify which ones have got the predisposing factors who are likely to develop addictions. And then what do you do then? Do you then give them education? Do you then do programs to build self-esteem? Do you, you know, or certainly you'd need, you'd tell them, look, you're, 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 you're highly at risk of becoming an addict, a, a, an active drug addict or alcoholic or gambler or sex addict or you know shopping addict or whatever it is 
That's that's fascinating, Mark. I you know you've covered things there that I've I've never heard of before. Just that idea around sensitivity, and that might be the one of the key factors that actually leads to addiction later in life. That makes a lot of sense. And I think anybody that is a researcher, that could be a really interesting um, area to explore. And then the evolutionary explanation as well, where um, and this is wild speculation, and this is might be might be completely wrong, but it would make sense to me from you know, if we were hunter gatherers and if yeah. I, if I had a tendency, if I had a dopamine deficit, then that's going to make me want to hunt more and want to go out yeah. and pursue things more. And I'm going to be wired that way. And I, I'm going to get rewarded for that as well. So it seems that that might even be like hardwired into some of our biology, just because if we had that, had that, if our ancestors had that, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, completely. Now, and then you take it a bit further, you say, well, actually, some of the the addicts, so some of the people with addictions would have been maybe the entrepreneurs of the tribe, right? Because if you imagine, if they've got a deeper need to get the dopamine, so say there's like 10 people and they've all got enough dopamine, right? There's nine others that have got enough dopamine. They don't need any more. They're not looking for any, because validation, right? Instead, you know, like getting external validation gives a lot of dopamine, right? And serotonin. So, and oxytocin, well, not oxytocin, but serotonin for sure. But so you imagine if I've got, if I'm in a tribe and I've got a dopamine depletion and I I need more dopamine, right? And then they say, well, who's going to be the leader of the tribe? Who's going to be the leader of the tribe? Or who's going to take risks? Because every tribe would like, you need the people that are going to jump in the water and to make sure there's no crocodiles in there, or who's going to be more adventurous to go across terrain to then to then attack other tribes or whatever it might be. So those, the guys, there's a school of thought. My friend wrote about, about this really as well, and he, he, he tended to think that they would have been, they, 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 they would be the watchers of the tribe. They'd be like the gatekeepers of the tribe, the people with addictions. Because of the, the, the hypersensitivity, they could feel more, they're more intuitive. There's more, they're more empathic, right? And because they've got, because they're, in one respect, they're overexposed and underprotected to some degree. But then there's the, the other side of it is that sensitivity, they can just really use that. And, and they're very myopic. People with addictions are really sort of, like what makes Eric, say, say for example, and, it, and it's transferable skills, look, what makes, these same people and Eric, what makes him a phenomenal guitarist is his addiction, right? Is because he plays that instrument over and over and over again till he reaches perfection with it. He's got the unrelenting standards life trap. He's got that really, you know, it's the, the schema. He's got that significantly, right? What makes uh, what makes Russell such a good comedian, right? Or or or, or really talented what you know um you know it, 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 it it's like it is that sort of addictive is that super addictive sort of tendency is that, that so that can be transferred so as opposed to how people are viewed in society is that people with addictions are weak willed it's actually the opposite they're they're very strongly willed People with addictions are sort of myopic and, and they're often uh, very rebellious and just really willful. But it's when the addiction gets 
Oh shit, shit. Oh, uh, oh man, sorry. I just need to let. Uh, can you see me still? Can you see? Right, let me just get this. I yeah. Can you see me? Yeah, right. It's when it's when the addiction is is focused on a destructive pattern, then you've got a problem. You know. Um, so so you can channel the so that that yeah. I I just think it's it's I I think that's what would have probably happened in tribes. The people that w were much more dopamine, that, that, that seek dopamine, they would have taken more risks. They would have looked for more validation. And and the, the likelihood is they would have been quite respected in the tribe because they were so driven, you know. And they would have stuck, stood, stood out from the, the sort of more, the people who, who didn't really have those same drives. 100%. So many questions that are coming to mind here. <laughs> so I'm going to try and pick a pick a couple that uh, that might be yeah. interesting. Uh, so it just it strikes me then that knowing that for someone that's that might be struggling with an with an addiction now, just the the mere knowledge that the same thing that is causing them a lot of trouble in their life that can be channeled into something productive that can benefit themselves and others. Like you, you hear stories all the time. People you know, turn their lives around like yourself and mm. do an incredible amount of good in the world. You know, there's, there's a guy, Rick Roll, he was, a, he was an addict, he was an alcoholic and he's, yeah. he's, he's got a similar story. Um, so that's the first thing. And then, um, what was the other thing I was going to say? Uh, yeah, it seems to be that the root of this is it, there, or one of the core sort of problems here is that there's a belief we have that we're not enough and yes. the addiction is sort of like an adaptive strategy to sort of get that basic need met, you know? Um, yeah. 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 And then I was, I was going to ask as well, and after you you've been through recovery and yeah. Yeah. what have you found most helpful for keeping, you know, keeping that going and thriving in day-to-day -day life? What, what habits and everything have you, that have, have benefited you, would you say? Oh, well, I, I would say, I would say um, what's benefited me as opposed to maybe what other people in recovery is that I've continued to push myself forward. Like I've, I think addiction works in a lot of different ways. It, not just like, so the drugs and alcohol or whatever, whatever behavior it is, gambling, sex, that's only the symptom of the addiction. That's just what the person does to medicate, right? So what you've got to look at is, so what is it they're trying to medicate? What, what does the longing long for, right? When, when you're an addict, you're always longing for this. There's never enough drugs. There's never enough alcohol. There's never enough sex. You're, you're, there's this insatiable appetite. I mean, it's, we write this, so many songs that are about it and they can't get the satisfaction, all that. Thing is, so there's this thing of of um, of chasing this this thing and the chasing and and but there's a futility with it because you know you can never get. I mean, I I sat and I remember sitting in, you know, I'd sit in these crazy places. You know, like I remember sitting in this uh, this guy's house. It was like a way up in the Himachal Pradesh in a place called Manali and what well, was a place called Milan. It was a different village. 
in uh, when I was 20, I was 21 years old. And I remember the, the room that I was sitting in, there was about 200 kilo of hash in the in the, the room. He was like, and it was a, it was a so I was right up in North India and I was right in the farm where they, they produce all the, the local people just would rob the plants and produce the cannabis. So I was right and so I was right at the centre and I was buying, I was buying, the, the first time I was just buying a few kilos, it was like not much, I was buying a few kilos of it just to bring back and smuggle it back. But I remember sitting there and, and, and I was thinking, God, I, I, I want to get all of this I want to take all of this back with me. I want to try and get like a truck load of this back to the UK. And and um, and and what would happen, even if I could have got a truck, I mean, later on I managed to get car loads of it back through, through customs, but, but even if I could get all of that, there would still be this thing of I want more. You know, it's like this, this, so, so, Okay, so then I stop using drugs and alcohol and, and the, the, the addiction morphs into other areas, right? Because as soon as I'm not getting a fix from, uh, from drugs and alcohol anymore, it, it, ten, it looks for expression. Addiction looks for expression in some other area. So then it would go into, at the very beginning for me, it was gambling. It was like, oh, well, the next thing you could do, you could get a hit from gambling and that's not a drug, you know? And then I got, I got, like caught gambling and in, in the rehab when I was in the rehab. So then it stops and then it's like, okay, I need to get a ghetto. I need to get women. Like, so I need to then, what can I fix on? I can fix on the ghettos in the rehab because there's some hot women in the, you know, it's like, it goes into, oh, uh, I, I, I've got to get, because that will fill the void inside me. But so so, I mean, Jung talked about this years ago. I mean, a long time ago, he said that addiction's a spiritual malady. He said it's like the person's looking for God, but they're looking for God. They're looking now, not necessarily he's talking about something existential or Christian or any of that. He said the person's looking for to fill that vacuum inside with whatever behavior it is, you know, and so. So you've got to find, I've had to find, like, my version of God. I've, I've had to, now, it, it sounds simplistic, but it's not, and it's not as easy as that because you keep forgetting. In recovery, I can, I can like, follow some sort of spiritual pursuit or I can follow some sort of principles in my life to, to live by. But then I've got the addictive part of me that keeps saying, all oh, right, but look at that there. That looks really shiny. That looks really nice. Have, you need some of that. And that's the, 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 the sort of battle really in recovery is just because I stay clean for 25, like I'm 25 years and 25 and a half years clean and sober, doesn't mean that then that's it done and dusted. I'm not an addict anymore. That's not at all because I'm still, I've still got an addictive personality. I just, it's just that I'm in recovery from it. I just don't act on, and then you could say, well, has everybody really to some degree got addictive personalities? Is it actually, you know, the whole society really has got addicted? It's just that some some addictions are socially acceptable, like the workaholic who works, the chief executive at the bank or the you know, or the or the guy who's in private equity or asset management or hedge fund who's chasing like hundred million bonus funds and getting commissions and who is he an is he an addict really? But he's an addict to money. 
and status and kudos and power that money gives, but it's a it's a socially acceptable addiction. Or the person who's in the gym all the time, or the woman or the man who's in the gym all the time, or who's who's obsessed with their diet and upset, you know, and you know, so you could say that, you know, it's just it's just a, but I, but I, for me also. I, I think what really has helped is I, I'm in 12-step fellowships. I've been in them for years. I really like them. I also, like, um, I've tried to not let my addiction keep me small. My my addiction tries to keep me small, tries to restrict my growth, and it does it through the limitations of my imagination. My So that twin, that addictive part or subpersonality within me will say things like, oh, you can't possibly do a traumatology degree, or you you couldn't achieve that, or you couldn't, you couldn't write a book, or you couldn't get that book into a film, or you couldn't do a podcast, or you couldn't. It tries to restrict my growth. And the it's funny, my friend, I've got a friend called Simon Woodroff who who's who created Yo Sushi. And uh, and, and he talks about this all the time is that if I keep myself in my comfort zone, I don't grow, right? And if I don't grow, right, because I don't take risks and I don't push myself through my fear and, you know, and uh, build resilience through that, then that impacts my self-esteem. And if my self-esteem, and if I'm sort of, if my self-esteem is not growing, and generally, if we think everything in life plants everything if it's not growing it's usually stagnating or it's decaying so if i'm not growing i'm much more at risk of going back to my addiction so i'm always sort of like trying to push myself forward and learn and, and grow and get wiser and you know um because i can see that i can't stay stagnant really i can't like yesterday's showers yesterday's shower is not going to keep me clean today do you know what I mean I have to like uh, if I went to the gym yesterday I'm still if I don't stop going to the gym or I stop doing swimming or whatever it might be I'm going to get unfit I'm going to get physically unfit so I have to apply the same principles like so what do I do for my recovery today and uh, and what is it I, I keep doing to keep me on the track that I want to be on because because it's like that we say we say in the fellowship, like if I don't change the man that brought me into recovery, that same man will take me back out. So, so because I'll go back to the old template because that's my sort of default position is to go. So even if I came out here saying, I mean, just on a really practical level, if I say I bumped into somebody downstairs and I got really angry with them and I sort of threatened them or or I was really rude to them, my, you know, my behaviour would be of the same type. So I, I would be thinking the same ways I used to think, which is like self-centred and, and different and intolerant. And, and my feelings would be obviously anger or rage and the behaviour would be this hostility towards the person. And then, of course, then I'd feel that would impact my self-esteem, how I really feel about myself as a man, right? Whereas if I walk out of this building and I, and I bump into somebody and I say, oh, sorry, mate, sorry, I've never seen you there, and, and, and we have a friendly exchange, I feel quite good. I feel, you know, because I'm thinking differently, I'm feeling differently, and I'm behaving differently. 
And that applies that. I mean, that's just an example, but that like in recovery, that's why it's much more than just changing, stopping using drugs and alcohol. It's about an ongoing change of personality. You know, that's what defines where somebody's in recovery or whether somebody's like, they're, they're just sober or clean and they're not changing. Because in some respects, you know, if you take away the, you know, there's this, we say you can take rum out of the fruitcake, but you're still left with the fruitcake. It's like, I can, I can still, I can, you know, if I'm, I'm just, if I don't have some type of program, I'm, I could be worse than I was before because I've not got any medication, you know. So to some degree, I could have more anger or rage, sober and clean, than I would when I had drugs and alcohol because the drugs and alcohol helps sedate some of that anger or rage. 100%. Um, so do you think this is why whenever... I'm not sure if they do this or not. I think I've heard this, but in, in AA meetings, yeah, you sort of have to say, you know, I, I've been an alcoholic for this amount of years. Yeah. They continue to identify as an alcoholic. And is that, do you think the reason they do that is because they, it means that you can't get complacent and you realize that every day slip up? Is that, is that why they do that? Because uh, what they do, why they do it is that's the first step, right? And the, and the 12 steps is, is to admit that you are an alcoholic or an addict is to say, I I can see it's a it's a humble thing. It's the it's the whole thing of humility is that you can only you can only sort of recover. You can't sort of graft a new idea on a closed mind. If I the only way I got clean and sober was I had to reach for me I had to reach a part a, a point where my ego was deflated enough that I could ask for help, right? Now, if my pride, my ego is so strong and it said, no, I know best and I can do this on my own, that pride, that ego eventually will kill you. If you just think of the amount of people that, you know, that, you know, even the, the sort of celebrity people you see that they die, you, you know, they, they pick up after years or they commit suicide. I mean, just even last year, a few years ago, there was Caroline Flack, there was Keith Flint from Prodigy, there was uh, uh, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman who had relapsed and he, he, he tried to get clean again. What Robin Williams, who took his like the amazing comedian, they, they were all people with addictions and they had various times of sobriety and, and, and well, not Caroline Flack so much, and Keith, Keith Flint was a little bit, but it's basically, you can see that there has to be um, the, the, the in order to get well. There has to be a you have to concede to your innermost self that you have this. Whether they call it an illness or whether I know a lot of people go oh, God, illness, or but it would certainly be categorised now if we were as a disorder, like an eating disorder. So basically, um, so I the, the whole thing is about be, being in a meeting and saying. My name's Mark. I'm an addict. I'm recognizing and saying to the group, I suffer from the same condition as you guys do. And, and also that I, I, I'm open to hearing new information and I need to follow a, a path of recovery. And, you know, and, and, and it reinforces in your mind, oh, this is what, you know, because it's, 
it's an insidious, cunning uh, uh, process. Like it's, it works unconsciously on on so many people. They, they 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 don't understand how they got into the position that they picked up a drink or drug again after years. They think, how did that happen? Like, and it's because un- unconsciously they make decisions with, which seem quite irrelevant decisions, but can have catastrophic. It really catastrophic outcomes, you know, and uh, so, so you're, you know, by having a program, you can you can sort of guard against, you can get a sort of mental defence against it. Yeah, hundred percent. Now, I suppose that makes me curious to ask: Do you think people have to hit rock bottom? Because it seems a big part of recovery is that you have to get the ego out of the way, and if the ego is still there and still strong. You're always going to make rationalizations. And then the yeah. other thing I wanted to ask as well, Mark, um, it's becoming increasingly ob- obvious that addiction has very little to do with specific substances themselves. Obviously, there are s- substances mm. that are addictive. Yeah, sure. But it can be anything. It can be gambling. It can be... Yeah. I think Gabor Mates, he, he used to buy records, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Anna Lemke. Anna Lemke was romance novels, you know? So romance I'm curious... Right, yeah. From your uh, from your experience working on Harley Street, you know you 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 specialize in addiction. Have you come across any common addictions that people might not even uh, be aware of? I just want to I just want people to be aware that this this happens. Like it can happen. Yeah, anything, you know? well, well, a, a massive one too is codependent relationships. People getting into, I mean, like works a big. Like works a massive one for for some people who who are just working all hours of the day. They don't turn the phone off. It interferes. Like it's much more subtle, isn't it? The work one because you know it. As I said, like they're celebrated in society. Somebody who's making lots of money or who's successful can be like put on pedestals really within their within their society. But but if you imagine somebody's like working from seven o'clock in the morning till ten o'clock, or, you know, checking emails right up till nine, ten o'clock at night, and they've got a partner or they've got kids. What's happening there is that they're neglecting. Like, like and what happens is as well is we water seeks its own level. You can attract other people. Often we, you know. Does you can just attract other people who are also workaholic, and then it becomes like, oh, you're both workaholics together, and and then you're, you you know it's you know and that's that's definitely a big one that I've seen workaholism. I've seen definitely codependent relationships where people deprioritize their own needs and they 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 make somebody else more important, or or they make the man or the woman more important. Than looking after themselves, so they keep entering relationships where they're where they're really abandoned, or they or they pick cold, cold, yeah, unavailable partners, and they keep going. Well, why did why is this one? It's like it's almost like you know, it's it's quite interesting that that a lot of that's unconscious too. Unless you get sort of well and get really a lot of awareness around that, you can start. And yeah, you know, you, you, it, that's why it's important for people to date people or get so that they can make a sort of more thoughtful, considered decision rather than just jump into something. And then the fantasy of the person, as opposed, they, 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 people get really hooked into the fantasy of who they think the person is rather than who they really are. 
And then, the, and then the person shows up maybe a year later when they're living with them. They go, God, I didn't like this about him. I didn't like this about horror. You know, I didn't know she was, you know. So so I, I think around love and sex and co- codependence, there's like, you know, there's there's people, I mean, I see a lot of people around, around those areas, certainly gambling, certainly work. Um, I, I, in the past, I've seen a lot, you know, people who are really addicted to the gym and exercise, you know, uh, and it's interesting. Uh, uh, there's, 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 there's situations where people are, they stay in denial around their addiction because they're really, uh, they're high achievers, you know, like, so they'll do really well in their work and they're making lots of money or they're making, they're doing really well because they're really focused on that area as well. So they're, they're, they're very manageable around their work, but they're still maintaining some type of addiction with drugs and alcohol. And they, they um, you, you know, the, the, so it's, it's, it's just quite, or they'll, they'll maybe be doing loads of exercise. They'll be able to do Ironmans and do these mad ultra marathons. They'll go and do it and they'll say to themselves, Ah uh, well, if I was like an, an alcoholic or an addict, there's no way I could do like 50 mile runs across these mountains and you know, like are these landscapes or be in these hot deserts and do, you know, and it's just another mechanism to stay in denial around their the addiction, you know, because it's a it's like a rationalization, a justification that they can sort of hide bit, you know, and that's why I'm saying it's really insidious and cunning when you break it down how how people what what sort of you know in their mind what kind of narratives they create that help justify the behavior that's, that's so interesting um so you know mark if i was let's say that we're sitting hardy street here now and i was to come yeah. and say look mark i'm pretty sure i am a workaholic and uh i really need some help with it how would you approach, you know, as a therapist, how would you yeah. approach helping someone in that situation? Okay, so I would I would find out about their relationships. I'd find out about, you know, their children, their, their, their wife or their husband or their partner, or, you know, I'd find out a wee bit about that and the impact and what is the, con- like, try and get get to the root of it and say, well, okay, so what's the consequences? What What's the outward consequence of the behaviour? What have you done in the past to try and change it? what's been useful and what's not been useful and then and and just get an understanding of exactly how it manifests how the worker and then start to see okay well what is the driver below it what is it that's going on underneath the work is just a symptom right this is just what you do but what is it we you feel about yourself so then i start to explore with maybe one of the tools from reinventing your life the, the jeffrey young the schema therapy say okay let's look at the schemas let's look at the unrelenting standards let's look at the sense of the, i mean we've got a living in that but there's a living schemas abandonment effectiveness vulnerability social exclusion emotional deprivation um, entitlement subjugation failure you start to look at the you'd start to look at what schemas and identify which ones are really active and what, what the scores are for those, those particular schemas. And then we'd go through and we'd, we'd prioritize the ones that are most active, the highest scores, 
So say unrelent, like workaholics going to have unrelent standards. They're going to be perfectionistic for sure. They're going to keep. So, so you'd look at that unrelent standards. So you'd look at the, the, the positives of it. The positives are, yeah, you, you're, you're a high achiever. You, you know, you're this particular, like somebody like Elon Musk, what he, he's got unrelent standards, right? Tesla. So he, if you look at his childhood, the father and everything and what, how he grew up, he, there was there was an abandonment really. It was an abandonment, and then how he got self esteem really is by by that complete drive. This is what I mean. Lots of successful people are are entrepreneurs. Are people really with addictions? But it's they've became they've they've turned it. And lots of sports people, you know, your tennis players, are, you know, and. Football players, they, they often go into gambling addictions or, or sex and love addictions, but the, the footballers more than anything else. But, you know, so you, you look at that unrelenting standards life track and go, okay, the benefits are this, but what are the consequences when you are just continually driven from morning to night and, you know, you've got the money that you wanted, but yet you still can't stop you can't, you're not able to consolidate, you're not able to step back and go, like, what kind of quality of life? You're driven by this, this sort of like sergeant major in your head, really, that just keeps on pushing you and pushing you. And so who's really in charge? Is your addiction in charge or are you in charge? You know, so you've got to get them to say, okay, and what do you, how do you want to change it? What do you want? What kind of quality of life do you want? How do you want to take control? How do you want to get control of your life again? You know, uh, and then you, you, then I would be like, okay, this is how we're going to meet. We're going to meet every week. We're going to focus on this. Uh, how you know? How do we? How do we recognize changes? You know, you set some sort of benchmarks, really, of what you would like to. You know, and 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 you set some rules. You say, you know, like. You know, it's a bit, it's a bit different the way I work with addictions as, as like a normal therapist. A, no, a normal therapist, I used to do some trainings for the BACP, and a normal therapist don't give advice and they don't, you know, it's much more, they're like much more person-centered and they're not so interactive. And I mean, that was what counseling was like years ago. I mean, it was usually, I mean, most counselors in this country historically were white middle-class women who, who got jobs where their husbands were working and they had it as a slight side profession. But that, when those types of individuals are working with people with addictions who are, who are they're bright, you, people with addictions can often be quite bright and they're, they're quite, and very manipulative and cut, like you, you can, you, you, you have to hold them accountable. You have to be very directive with people with, because, Ultimately, the addiction can kill them, right? And I don't, and I've had this before where clients have had, you know, they're wound up dead, you know, and, and, and I always think, God, if I'm standing in front of a coroner and there's an inquest, I'm accountable, I'm a sole trader, really. I have to be like, what did I do? What, what did I do to ensure as much as possible that that person was safe? Do you know what I mean? And, and as opposed to other sort of, ailments, you know, that are, are emotional disturbance that people can have. When you're working with people with addictions, as they can take it to the, the, they'll take it to the, I mean, if they're using drugs or alcohol, they can wind up with a stroke or a heart attack. So it is fatal. So I, I'm often thinking, right, 
how do I ensure that? So with with the with individuals, I always am like, okay, if you know, um, you know, if there's a risk to you, or there's a you know, there's always the three areas. You always say, look, if I need to inform, you know, social services if it was anything to do with children or the abuse of children or anything to do with terrorism or anything anything to do with harm to you or others. I would have to, you know, I, I have to, uh, you know, keep myself as a lone practitioner safe around that. So, you know, if, if you're, you know, so I would like your permission. If I thought you were going to kill yourself as a result of your suicidal ideation or you had, you know, or you were using loads of coke and I thought you were really at risk of having a heart attack, that I could inform your mother or your father or your wife or husband. And, and, and I... I always really get consent to do that because it 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 prevents. Then I know that I've got I've got a sort of process really that I can that uh, you know that's robust where you know I, 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 I've got more support really. And obviously, I, I tell my supervisor, and my supervisor knows as well. So that there's a there's a level of accountability. But yeah, yeah, I think is it. Any, was there anything else I should add about that question? Is there anything else that you think? No, no, no I think you've explained that really well. So th- th- this is my kind of understanding of what you said. So I'll repeat this back to you and then you let me know yeah. if we're on the same page. So the first thing you, you do is you identify the the context around them, their relationships, their, their sort of life circumstances. Yeah. The present. And then after that there, you start getting into schemas, you know, things that might have happened yes. in their past. And then you're looking at how the behavior, the consequences of the behavior, um, how that's affecting their life, like and how that like working like 12 hours a day is negatively affecting yeah. the rest of their life. And then once they begin to see that, then you're asking, right, you know, um, how do you want to change? Like, what do you want yeah. to be different about your life? So you're getting them on board with actually making the change. Yeah. And then you yeah. t- together, you're co-creating sort of strategies and rules yeah. so that you can uh treat the treat the addiction is that yeah yeah and and, and i'll probably what it says i'd ask them at the beginning of how do they want to change it what is their vision for themselves so i'd probably do that I'd, well i would do that at the beginning like what is it they want to do about it and then so that i know right from the go get is that they want to change it that they want to take action back to the point you said earlier does somebody have to hit a rock bottom do they do they and this is like an interesting, an interest because we've all got different pain thresholds, haven't we? So, what might be an emotional pain threshold for you might be very different for me. Like, so I never got clean till I was thirty-two, for example. Uh, but I think it was in a lot of emotional pain way before that. I mean, uh, uh, like I wanted to change it. Say seven years before that, my best friend died when I was twenty-five. I think that was a jumping off point. I could have, I could have got clean when I was twenty-five, maybe. But because of my pain threshold, my emotional pain threshold, I can put up with a lot of pain without, without, without changing it, right? Whereas a friend of mine got clean when he was seventeen, right? So it's not necessarily about the rock bottom; it's about the person. And about their threshold for pain. So my friend of mine who became a director, he's, he's a really good director. His name's Nick Love. He, he does Football Factory and Green, the business and the Sweeney. He's done these really good movies. 
So say Nick would have got clean, you know, he he would have got clean much younger than that. So you, you know, it, it's like because his pain threshold was like, this is enough for me. I need to go and get clean, you know. So it really, it just really depends on the individual, you know, and, and, and equally. So then you think yourself, you know, you think somebody like, say, Elton, Elton John, right, who got clean, my, fr my friend works with him, so he got clean a bit later. So he had no real consequences around his life, like, you know, because he's got a lot of money and resources, you know, still doing lots of really good music while he was in his addiction. But, so... So there was no coin, like, whereas if you think of somebody, a working class boy from Peckham Park Estate in, in London, who has to go out and steal every day and steal butcher meat or steal whatever he needs to steal to fund his habit, somebody like Elton or Eric, in, they don't need to do any of that, right? So they're not getting it, they're not going to prison, they're not going, but for them, what gets them to, is the emotional pain, really, that, that it's, it's not the circumstances so much around, oh, I've got to go to prison or I've got to keep on doing this bit. It's the fact that they're in deep emotional pain and they can't they, they can't deal with it any longer. So then they get clean. So it's it's quite interesting this and what and and what I think is a really common theme is whether people are religious or whether they're spiritual or not, most people I've ever met have a, a bottom where they reach the something inside them cries out to whatever it is, whether it's a religious God or whether it's, but cries out for help inside and then is open and receptive to, to change. So there is something about that, that that seems to happen is that they hit this place where I can't do it anymore. Now that window can be short. Now this is the difficulties. And this is why I try and see people really quickly. You know, when somebody phones me, says I've got an addiction, because I know that it takes so much for somebody to get on the phone. A lot of the time, you know, you've got to, your ego's got to be significantly reduced to go and ask for help generally. So what I try and do is as soon as I get a call, I try and see them as quick as possible. Because I know sometimes there's a window, there's a short window when they're asking for help and you can then go in and then give them the help that they need and set them on the path. And I know from my own experiences is that I had a few windows like that before I got clean, but then I never seen MD because there was, you know, it's, it's interesting, like drug services historically in, in Britain have been set up in a way where they you know, the book appointments. So say I go into a drug service, a normal drug service in the community, and they say, I, I say, I want to see somebody because I've got cocaine or I've got a crack problem. They'll say, okay, we'll give you an appointment for Tuesday next week at two o'clock, right? Now, by Tuesday next week at two o'clock, that's no use to me, right? Because look, if I phone a dealer, right? If I phone a dealer now from Harley Street, that dealer will say to me, I'll meet you in Tesco's car park in 20 minutes. It's quicker than getting a pizza. I mean, quicker than that, maybe even 10 minutes. So so the dealer is always the competitor for the drug service, right? The competition is, you know, so so drug services and services generally, whether it's private or whether it's, it's local authority funded, they have, to, they have to be as effective, really, as the dealer. Because the de dealer doesn't mess around, right? The dealer's like, right, we'll see you in 10 minutes, right? You've got to get the person in that moment of that window 
Because if you don't get them engaged, and that's why when I get the call, I'll say, look, I'll see you tomorrow at nine o'clock. Or if I can do it, I'll see you on the same day. Because I know that if they've got the appointment and they think it's just, but maybe even if they still go to the car park and meet the dealer, it doesn't matter. They've, there's 50-50 chance I've got them to come in. You know, whereas if I say, oh, I'll see you in a week's time, it's too far away. Because each, when you're in drug addiction, one minute to the next can feel, you know, like you're just thinking about the next 10 minutes. You're just thinking about the next hour to keep yourself high, really. What you've said there, that reminds me of Wendy Dryden's thing. He says, like, therapy oh, like- is best provided at the point of need. And that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, for you, um, I just I'm just an observation, you know, like the contribution you're making to the the to the to the addiction field and all the people people you're helping i just wonder you know would that be possible if you if you have not experienced the lows so it's almost like the lows have shaped you yeah. in some way you know yeah um and there's about a million other things i would love to ask you mark but i know you've got to go your website markdempstercounseling.com yeah book um nothing to declare what's the other one called again i uh, the ongoing path the ongoing path definitely check those books out people and Mark's going to be one of three speakers at our forthcoming Day in Addiction, along with Anna Lemke and Mark Lewis, who's going to be presenting on IFS and addiction. So it's going to be a fascinating day. Mark, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you and learn from you. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you um, next month at the, at the event. All right, take care. Excellent, excellent. Okay, then. See you later, Niall.